Hi, and welcome to That Cancer Conversation, the podcast by Cancer Research UK that brings together the science and the stories behind cancer, with me, Sophie Wedekind. September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, when we're highlighting the stories of those who have been diagnosed with cancer at a young age. But before we get into this episode, just a warning that it may contain some upsetting content for listeners. And if that's not for you, feel free to listen to one of our other episodes and subscribe to be notified when the next one drops. Every day in the UK, 12 children and young people will receive the devastating news that they have cancer. And that's not just impacting 12 individuals, it's impacting 12 families. Austin was first diagnosed with a type of blood cancer called acute lymphoblastic leukemia on 15th of June 2011, when he was just two years old. Austin is now 14, and I sat down with his parents, Lou and Scott, who spoke to me about his incredible story. It's, it's amazing the things that he's been through for such a young age uh, that just very, it's very rare for children to have to go through such awful treatments that he has. And when he was about nearly two, he was ill for a very long time, like a, a month or so, and we had to keep taking him to the hospital and they just just kept sending him away and they they couldn't um they just never did a blood test and they kept saying it was tonsillitis so sort of a month down the line of him getting more and more ill um we this time demanded that he has uh a blood checks and there was a really great doctor on that day and he said right we'll do a lumbar puncture and like from that moment, a month of him being ill, they like blue lighted us to the hospital and said that we think he's either got meningitis or cancer or something. And and then they were brilliant at the RVI in Newcastle and uh, they said, yep, it's leukemia. And um, that was that was such a like obviously a big shock. Blood cancers like leukemia can cause an abnormal amount of white blood cells to be produced. Too many white blood cells can overcrowd the bone marrow, so there isn't enough space to make other types of blood cells, like neutrophils, which are important for fighting infections. But because he had these viruses before leukaemia, his his neutrophils were always already so low that he got an infection in his bottom. And this is within a week of them telling us he had cancer. And... um, he just, he was so ill and basically the skin was just disappearing and turning black um and he was rushed into intensive care um and so he was on intensive care for a good few weeks uh, they were absolutely amazing and um, it was very much touch and go there um and he did he did actually come through that so then after that he could we had to give him physio to get him to walk again and he had to have a colostomy bag so that was like a a month or so they had to stop his chemo for that because of that delay they then had to put him onto the most intensive regimen it was it was an intensive regimen of chemo and and um it was it was awful. It came with all the usual side effects of leukemia treatment. It was awful sickness and diarrhea and everything. 
But um, un- unfortunately, after that, he was okay for a short time, but he, he relapsed. After his relapse, Austin was put onto another treatment called R3. R3 was a combination of chemotherapy drugs given to children and young people with relapsed acute lymphoblastic leukaemia at this time, but was quite toxic. I lost Austin uh, um, mentally during that time. He, um, he, he just couldn't um, even communicate. He was just staring. And um, for a boy that always used to laugh and sing every day, I never, I, I just didn't get anything from him. And that, for me, that was one of the hardest things. Um, I mean, we were living in hospital. We hardly ever left. That was months. So after that, we actually did get a couple of years. He got through it. Um, um, and it was lovely to get life back for a short time. And then he got um, another relapse. So this is actually relapse number two. And um, with this one, he, he obviously had to have a bone marrow transplant now. And, and that came with full body irradiation that included cranial radiotherapy and we had to live on ward three which is the isolation ward so we were there for a couple of months and there can only be like one parent in at a time that was hard and he actually had a, a German donor for this one um an amazing German guy who actually donated twice for Austin it did actually work and we again we got a couple of years back again it was lovely and not to have that pit of worry in your tummy like just living with it constantly but when Austin was seven he relapsed again for the third time and this time I didn't really think there was much they could do because the cancer sort of had gone mostly around his body and into his CNS system. So it was in his sort of brain fluid and, and his little body couldn't really take much more. And I remember all um, the, the machines in the hospital really beeping. They never stopped beeping because he was, he was on so much, so many drugs and, um, and he he got a nasty virus in his lungs. This is all because he had no neutrophils, and his his body couldn't, it just couldn't fight it anymore. The X-rays of his lungs they they were just full of virus, and he had uh, an oxygen tank on, and he was breathing very in a laboured way. Um, and they said, right, there's, there's nothing more we can do. You take him home. And the strange thing was, I couldn't wait to take him home. (laughs) And I loved taking him away from the hospital and not having any more beeping machines. And we put him in the lounge and we decided that we had to try and keep everything as upbeat as possible. So we had little Lottie around and lots of visitors who ever wanted to come and see him. I mean he was just lying on the settee one night he um I mean his his breathing was it was the middle of the night and we were camped out next to his bed and it I held his hand 
and his breathing was, and you couldn't even really hear the second breath. And I, I said, you can go now. I sort of, I fell asleep. And when we woke up in the morning, he was still alive. And which was really incredible. Unbelievably, his body had just decided to fight back. And honestly, no one could believe he'd come back from that. No one. When we walked in back into the hospital like two weeks later, he got a standard ovation. <laughs> It was really amazing. Austin was put on a gentler course of chemotherapy to stop his cancer symptoms getting worse again. Then, Lou and Scott found a new trial taking place at Great Ormond Street Hospital, led by Professor Persis Amorelia. This trial was a type of immunotherapy called CAR T-cell therapy, which uses donated T-cells that would be modified and trained to protect against cancer. Austin was given these immune cells from the same German donor who previously provided bone marrow. It was the very, very first time that we'd been offered a slightly different pathway that wasn't just like just bomb his whole system, but to actually target um, the, the cancerous cells. So, like, we were over the moon to be able to be offered something when all treatment options had been exhausted. So, we were actually really excited about that. And <laughs> Within a year, unfortunately, he did relapse. Um, I, we, I'll never forget that. Me and Scott, we were about to go out to a big party. We were all dressed up. And uh, Percy's called me and said, I'm, I'm so sorry, but he, he's relapsed again you know, on that T-cell trial. But we have another one that's a little bit more advanced. And this second trial um, is using actually his own T-cells, not a donor this time. And that is our saviour and that, that technology and improvements just over quite a short time saved Austin's life. This T-cell trial, called the Carpal Trial, was led by researchers at Great Ormond Street Hospital, including Dr Sarah Garashian, a consultant haematologist and honorary senior clinical lecturer at UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health. So I was involved in the clinical study that treated Austin um, and since which he's not needed any further treatment. And um, at the time, I was a postdoctoral researcher um, at the Institute of Child Health. And um, as such, I was the lead scientist on the study. And so I actually made his CAR T cells in the laboratory. So we take the cells that um, look after viral infections in the body and help protect us against infections. So these cells are called T cells and we take them from the body and then we take them to the laboratory and then we genetically manipulate them so that they can recognise leukaemia and then infuse them back into the patient. They expand and make an army. So we infuse them and then there are relatively low numbers and they start dividing and expanding as they start recognising the molecule um, that they can now see on the surface of the leukaemia cells. And then they, having expanded, they can recognise leukaemic cells, they'll lock on to target, and then it's like a kiss of death. Um, and then basically through the point of contact between the two cells, then they deliver 
these granules that are toxic. So they fire these granules into the target cell and then the target cell dies. There are a number of different mechanisms, but that's what we see under the microscope when we set alkyl T cells, these special T cells up against leukemic cells. You know, the T cells don't normally see cancerous cells or um, leukemia cells because they're too similar to the body. But that through the process of this gene engineering that we do, it's like putting glasses onto the T cells so that now they can see the leukemia. And for as long as the um, CAR T cells hang around in the body, then they'll keep on seeing the leukemia potentially and can help them recognise and kill those cells. Scott, Austin's dad, remembers the moment his son was given his own engineered T cells. To the patient, to the family, it looks simple. They look like platelets. And if you're a leukemia sufferer, you're getting platelets all the time. It's just another yellow bag of platelets going up in a warm water bath. So it, it looks, it's quite unusual to see them when they came through and they had them presented and they're, you know, um, bringing them into the room and we were joking with the trumpets playing and stuff. It was a, you'll never forget the day. It was great. But yes, goes in in a very humble way, in a non-threatening way, which is great to see actually. But I suppose in some ways you kind of wanted to go in a bit more sci-fi because what's in the bag is so you know, advanced, yeah, it's so life-changing. It's kind of unusual that it was quite a simple and mellow uh, process. A bit of an anti-climax, but we tried to make it more of a... Yeah, 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 I remember uh, that, but it was exciting. good. But yeah, you know that what's in the bag's really special. So it was quite scary when the cells were going in, in case he was to get any toxicity. But um, ultimately, it's been the thing that's protected him from relapse of his leukaemia. And so, um, you know, that's a really strong thing to have been part of. You know, it's a big achievement, not just to be the scientist who delivers the treatment. Or, you know, and that was in the setting of lots of support, of course, um, both for my mentor, Persis Amrolia, who was the chief investigator on the study, and also, you know, the Institute, which has helped deliver this research, um, and UCL, of course. But just then to have also been looking after him medically at time points after the CAR-T cell infusion, and then to have been the person who actually helped make the cells in the laboratory that, um, yeah, it's a pretty um, sort of end-to-end job, if you like. But medicine is only one part of this story. There's much more to care than things like chemo or even CAR T-cell therapy, because children with cancer are still children. And for Austin, Lou and Scott were surprised to find how important toys and play were to his recovery. I never thought it would play that important a role, but when we were stuck in ward three and you really for months and there's not much to do he just loved the lego and he 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 built a superstar destroyer practically himself on on that ward and his room is still still full of his lego we're trying to sell it now (laughs) um and yeah, it was just a little packet, like at lunchtimes, running out to get a little pack of Moshi Monsters and you don't know what's inside the pack till you open it. And and his eyes would just become alert and, and he would, that's what got him through that little bit of excitement every day. And music and dancing and singing and the play nurses were amazing. Um, all of that, we I feel very strongly that you have to keep it very positive and be mentally happy as much as you can which obviously is really hard when you're not really feeling it but (laughs) Um, he actually remembers all the fun things the irony of that he just remembers hospital as fun and we obviously we still have to go now as well so he, he enjoys going it's always been enjoyment 
Oh, without doubt, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, I'd definitely second that for sure. I, you could see it in him, actually. Um, I guess, so to add on top of that a little bit, I'd say that um, when kids are in hospital, people want to bring them things, so therefore gifts become a little bit of a part of a, a norm, if you like. Um, so in terms of advice and from what I've seen, what's good was the fact that these little gifts were small and not expensive, but there was lots of them. And that means if a kid's in hospital for a long time, it gives them the goal. It's like kids collecting football stickers or whatever the hell they're saying. You know, it's it's the same stuff now, match attacks, whatever. But it's a psychological thing that made a huge difference to Austin. Um, there were days where if it wasn't for a plastic moshy monster, he wouldn't have got off the bed. But the notion of going to go and find one and find shops, like driving all the way to, go, to Gateshead to go to an Argos because we've heard that we've got them, it's kind of mad. But that was good to see us see that Austin was engaging his brain and moving his body and getting up and getting in the chair and fighting to get in the chair and we were doing it for a 50 pence mushy monster but it was a big deal that we were seeing the kind of inadvertent mental awakening if you like or the physiotherapy side of it that he was getting out the chair and moving and not giving up the fight yet because he was so weak with it you know taking oxygen bottles just to go and walk through a lego shop toys have an incredible ability to motivate and engage people and that's why Sarah is working with a company called Echo Games to develop computer games for people participating in her team's research. They're helping families with children who have gone through CAR T-cell therapy understand just how these unique cells in their bodies work. And it turns out, it's a lot like Pac-Man. Pac-Man game was the sort of first game that we played and that gave us lots of rounds of engagement and conversations. You, know, you could direct your CAR T-cell around um, the bone marrow and then you could hit leukemic cells to kill them and then we were we wanted to represent the research that we were about to do uh, which is the, the research funded by CRUK and so here we were trying to represent um, our investigation into what makes CAR T cells effective so um, the children would play the game first and see what the limitations are for their character um, and then they'd get a score and then they would be able to choose a superpower to give to their CAR T cell um, so they could either try a longer life or the ability to reach cells that were further away with a death rate, or they could divide the two cells or then go around um, in cooperation. Um, and so then they could replay the game and see if their selected superpower was effective in terms of their score improving. Um, and that was basically what we were then going to be doing in our research, was trying to understand which characteristics were more important for CAR T-cell therapy. We felt that we wanted to be able to reach the children, not to explain the treatment before they have it, but more afterwards to help explain a little bit about what we have done and what they've received. And then through that, start conversations, potentially either with the children or their parents. Um, and that's helped us start those conversations in turn then about, you know, what are their, what are their thoughts on research and what we've done so far. And um, and what are their what would their priorities be for our research in the future? And it's difficult to do that in the context where you've been a doctor and you have been you know, administering a treatment that sets the patient and family doctor relationship up in a, in a very sort of one way fashion, where you know um, I'm I'm dominant in the interaction. But by through this process of having this computer game and co-designing it with the children, we've been able to reset that balance. And that means that suddenly all this information starts flowing in the opposite direction. And through things like this, we also engage with our families. And then we had lots of other conversations around not just the research, but also how we deliver CAR T-cell therapy and what more we can do to help families coming through CAR T-cell therapy 
and then that has spun off some additional activities um so we um through our conversations identified that families felt that there was good technical information and medical information but that just how to cope and how to support one another in hospital or afterwards was tricky and so they suggested that sort of peer-to-peer support um help would be good um to inform other families of how to just manage and so through that because this was at the time of covid and the pandemic and um, we organized um videos to provide that content and that was sort of curated and again it was a sort of um it was curated with the families so that they would agree the content of those videos to help support other families going through CAR T cell therapy. Cancer is incredibly complex and it can be easy to get lost from all the jargon being used, especially when you're not used to it. But having things like games that can help visualise and break down these concepts are important and include people affected by cancer in the conversation. I spoke to Caroline Leake, founder and director of the Fruitfly Collective, a group that supports children, adults and families affected by cancer. She focuses on how we can explain the complexity of cancer and break the taboo behind the conversation. Well, I'm a scientist by background and then I had my kids and I realised actually how they learn is very different. I came up with this idea of just creating a family tool where there was understanding about what cancer was and how you get it and all of those questions that kids ask but then also how's it treated and then we added on all the tools around communicating how you can support better communication within the family because that's a critical thing really and then also providing tools where they can um, the children and effectively you know the parents get uh, emotional support around sort of coping tools actually to understand complex um, things that happen in families for example health problems or whatever then to be able to sort of bring in that creativity and that sort of using different ways of learning together as a family I just thought it was a really kind of critical thing and we packaged that up together and then you know it was kind of lapped up by all the healthcare professionals um and saying this is what's needed and then we sort of grew from there really Hmm. and did you find that there was a difference in having these conversations with children compared to the ones that um you were having with adults yes there is a a quite a significant difference in my experience so for example we did a whole school education programs where we went in and we taught primary school um, children over a thousand of them and so obviously statistically quite a few of them had been affected um, by cancer in their family or community and the difference between going into a staff room, for example, so we taught the teachers beforehand, was palpable. So like you get an assembly hall full of kids and it's just, you know, a real buzz. They're very, very curious. They're really like um, engaging. Whereas you walk into the staff room full of teachers and there's just sort of a sense of fear. So the adults... Um, are just generally more fearful because they've had uh, they have a better understanding of what the impact of cancer can do and so they have create you know they've they've grown up in a society that uh cancer's a taboo subject still whereas kids don't so kids come to a conversation about cancer in a completely different way they don't have the preconceptions of the impact of cancer um and they genuinely are very curious yeah and there can be quite a lot of science jargon in cancer as well 
Um, and that can be complex even for an adult to understand. And sometimes when we're writing articles for our website, Cancer News, we try to use things like metaphors and analogies to help people visualize stuff like um, how treatments work or how cancer cells behave. So when it comes to talking to a child about cancer, do you use similar tools or are there any kind of different tools that you use to help communicate to them about this topic? Absolutely. So we often also like for having exactly what you said about um, visualizing what it is because cancer is really for kids that don't understand cells and bodies and organs it's just like an odd weird thing so to actually give them something to hook onto something so they can visualize so we often use the flower bed analogy so that's like you know you've got a beautiful flower bed the cells are like the flowers that are growing healthily and then you have weeds and so the weeds are the cancer cells that actually if you don't get rid of them they're going to kind of ruin the flowers or healthy cells so just like the gardener pulls up the weeds the doctor were going to be pulling out the cancer and so that's they can understand they can draw they can go and look out and look out in the gardens or whatever and that can really help them with their understanding of what's going to be happening and then of course you can use that analogy if the cancer spreads so you can talk about weeds growing underground and popping up in different parts of the flower bed so it's quite a useful analogy and sometimes we use uh, Lego so for kids that love Lego so building a Lego wall uh, you know they can be like the healthy cells I know if you get some kind of mashed up Lego piece or one that's got like a, a pea or something stuck in the middle and it won't kind of fit on you could say you know that's like the tumor or the cancer cells and so what we're going to be doing is getting rid of that and so the wall or the Lego can be built into a lovely wall again. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun and also a really great way to get them engaged with the information. Did you also find that perhaps like the adults also wanted to get involved with that? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Um, so with the teachers, they loved it. And at the end, it, it was such a a massive Q&A we were there for ages and in, in the in the staff room because they suddenly had all these questions that they actually they've been sort of feels like they've been storing up um and playing with all the stuff that we had so we had like um 3d printed hands that had glowing tumors in and they were like elbowing each other out the way to try and get there and to to you know <laughs> to blast the tumor and we had a massive fabric doll that you opened zipped open and it had um a little fluffy tumor and stuff and they had to take a biopsy and they just loved it because it was just like play again and it was just like you might you're learning about stuff and you know but it's actually still in a very sort of of quite fun and you know creative way and then also the same with when we do family workshops you can see often the adults will sort of step back and allow the kids to do all the things like dress up as you know doctors or pathologists or whatever and come and you know and take out the the tumor from the doll but slowly you can see them coming forward and actually really wanting to be involved and by the end they are you know they're putting on you know kind of boxing mittens in order to try and do their shoelaces up so to represent neuropathy and things like that you know they're just totally into it because they can see actually their kids are they don't have the fear they want to be involved um and so it sort of encourages the kids uh, the adults so it's sort of in a sort of different yeah it's from a sort of bottom up really if you get the kids involved and then suddenly the adults go oh this is safe this is okay this is not as painful as I thought it was going to be and actually it's quite fun 
Every day there's progress being made to help beat cancer and take the fear away from a diagnosis. Since his treatment, Austin has continued to participate in CAR T cell therapy studies. His cells have taught Sarah and her team a lot about what's needed to make the treatment work better for more people. And it shows the importance of the partnership between researchers and the people that take part in groundbreaking trials like this. Now, it's not always known whether a study is going to be a success, but the commitment of research families like Austin's means that we're able to move forward to designing the next generation of approaches and providing better options for children in the future. You know, we have learned that families are prepared to go to great lengths um, to try and achieve a cure where none seems possible and that that means building up an element of trust, but that um, even if it isn't successful, on that occasion that you can build the trust so that they're happy to go on another journey with you in a different trial um, and continue to innovate as you need to and that the patients are often very strong advocates even if you feel like the progress didn't go in the direction that you wanted they're often the strongest voice to say no get back out there because you need to adapt that therapy so it can reach more people you know it's obviously great to have a one-hit wonder that meets all the criteria and, 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 and achieves all the needs. But in the reality is that with the newer treatments, particularly the immune therapies, that isn't the case. It's a question of making observations, taking those observations back to the laboratory and doing the full cycle again and again through iterative designs that incrementally get better, that break new ground, that take you in a new direction. And I think um, once you've had a almost serendipitous success in one area, it then becomes a responsibility to try and expand that to other areas so that patients, other patients can have access and other patients can have the hope that these new treatments can provide um, new ways forward where other therapeutic options have not helped or are limited. I mean, our families often have been on a study before and then they come on another study. So they're often very committed patients and families that are happy to take the leap of faith to try something new because they know their options are limited and um you know some of them are really brave in taking that on board either, either by being the first patient to be treated with that product or knowing there may be some toxicities that we've seen before and that might apply um um so it's it's yeah there's the leap of faith there's trusting us to try and do our best and trusting that this process might lead to better options for children in the future and um and then there's all you know, the generosity of, of you know, submitting yourself to the clinical study, yes, and the follow-up that's really needed to define the effectiveness and the toxicity of the treatment, but then allowing us to go further and ask these other questions, which are still very relevant, but aren't, um, aren't necessarily defined as the outputs of the study. Austin and I still go once a month. You can't have all of this treatment and there still not be side effects. So, like, he's, he's 14 now. So it's it's not like we can just say, oh, right, we're over now. We, we've got through all this. The, the history of what has happened to us as a family doesn't just disappear. It stays with you forever. But it is definitely more in a positive way now that we are out of the bad times. We're just dealing with side effects, but that's okay. The enormity as well of what we've done and the emotional intensity means that you cross the bridge between patient and carer. Um, it is closer, 
I think any families that have long-term health issues, you meet really special people um, in healthcare, really, really special people. You, you have to be hardwired in a very special and caring way to, to, to take that kind of job on. So you meet lovely people and they, they, they support you when you need it. And you can't, well, you shouldn't. I can't see how you could personally. We can't forget that. So that emotional relationship continues and you, you kind of want to help where you can. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to go down and see everyone again and, um, and, and, and relive some positive times with them, which every year sort of slowly chips away at the enormity of negative times because they're with you on the, the really horrific sessions. So it's lovely to forget about them and just reminisce of little sparks of good little events that happened years ago and see them again on a purely positive visit. Everyone was trying their best, but that's, that's where science was, metaphor, you know, as a, as a broad spectrum. So if you can do anything to help push data along to move things forward so the next set of families don't do as much damage because... You know, a lot of stuff is set up because the treatment is so damaging and it takes so long and it turns your life upside down for so long. If you can cut huge amounts of that out and get onto an immunotherapy treatment program, the the bad news day doesn't then make this arc that travels years. It could the arc could be a much shorter time frame and think actually in a year's time we could be through this with minimal long term effects. That's an amazing goal to reach and hopefully with mm. with science on your side you do it so i feel it's a really worthwhile endeavor to put the effort into supporting the charities in that way sarah and persis they have been just absolutely incredible people and they are our heroes mm. our team isn't it there was no other option you know that's why when you say do you make the decision there was a spark of something and then when you get that reward, why do you want to help? Because that's how close we were. That's how close we were. I think the impacts of therapy are often um, not visible in the medical sense of the word. And that to fully realise the impact on a patient, you need that voice to speak to the low level toxicity or the small disappointments or the things that just make things difficult. Um, and that's very difficult to quantify. Um, so you know, we have scientific tools, but sometimes they just, they don't, they're not as impactful as a patient voice. And so this is, you know, this, this is so important. And not only that, then that empowers us to go further and to do more. At 13, Austin wrote a poem for school, sharing his experience of having cancer. But before we hear it, I want to take this moment to say a huge thank you to all our guests on this episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening, and if you like, you can explore our show notes for more information and resources. Now we hear from Lottie, Austin's younger sister, reading his poem. I've been dealt a different hand in life that's moulded who I am. A hand of wild cards with high stakes, a gamble for Christ's sakes. Exchanging home for hospital, discarding friends for nurses, trumping toxins for T-cells, Dealing with problems I shouldn't have to deal with. For now, I will stick. I'm happy with my hand. I hope the deck doesn't get shuffled again. That Cancer Conversation is produced by the digital news team at Cancer Research UK. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.